Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, I was probably close at least, he said this, he said, if you want to build a ship, don't summon people to buy wood, prepare tools, distribute jobs, and organize the work. Rather, teach people the yearning for the wide, boundless ocean. Ed Stetzer, missiologist, church planter, pastor, author, he picked up on that, on that phrase, that statement. He said, if we want to see the church of Christ built up, we must yearn to be a part of God's mission in the world. There's just maybe a slight shift of perspective. Instead of the, uh, just getting our mindset on, on just the work that must be done, we must see the vision. We must have a picture of where we're going. We must have a longing for what could be. And Jesus gives us that longing through his mission. So may we know his mission and long for it and its fulfillment in the world. It will direct our action. It will direct our behavior. So this is week two of bodybuilding. Are you sore from last week? Yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. Where do we get this concept? Ephesians chapter 4. Paul deeply desired for the church in Ephesus and really for every church thereafter to grow strong in the Lord, to be the body of Christ, healthy, growing, thriving. Here's what he says, verse 11 and following of Ephesians chapter 4. Jesus gave, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So rather, this is verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If Paul's mission in life, the mission Jesus gave him, and his calling is to preach the gospel to all nations, primarily to the Gentiles, the the non-Jews, those who have never heard, who have no heritage, if that's his mission, to see the kingdom of Jesus expanded to the ends of the earth, then his strategy is bodybuilding. His strategy is building up the body, the local, the whole body of Christ, but starting with the local churches, specifically the ones that he saw planted. He knew that if a, if a local church in a region was growing, strong, healthy, thriving, bearing fruit, it would multiply. It would, it would change the world. So he had the mission from Jesus, and his strategy was to build up the church. Really direct orders to see the church built up. And it's, it's amazing to see what happened. We looked at it last week, just considering the growth, the multiplication of the early church from a few hundred. Now we know there was 120 gathered at that first Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, but there's probably a few hundred uh, Jesus followers at that time to when Paul wrote this in the 80s, 60s while he's in prison in Rome, there was an estimated 10 to 15,000 Jesus followers. And, and that, that would multiply, it would double again by the, by the year AD 100. Estimates would then be 25 to 30,000 Jesus followers, so it doubled. And then it just exponentially continued to double over the next 200 years so that by 8,300 or so, there were 20 
million followers of Jesus. And we ask the question, uh, prompted by so many missiologists who have asked that question, how did that happen? Consider that. This kind of growth, following the death of Paul and all of the apostles, save John, who died later but was imprisoned. So they're off the scene. Those first disciples, those first apostles who moved and saw the Spirit move in power and signs and wonders, they're dead. They've passed. The church is still, it's still illegal to be a Jesus proclaimer. Caesar was king. And these, to be a follower of Jesus, you, pro, you proclaim him as king. That, that didn't fly. They were under persecution and attack. There were no church buildings as we have them today. They would either meet in open places, in fields, in temple courts, by the river, if they had to meet in large groups, or they would pack out a house in a city. And that's what it means to be underground. They had no freedom to truly gather and assemble like we do today. They did not yet have the Bible as we have it. Some had fragments, had handwritten copies. Uh, they were not, it was not all grouped together yet. It, that was still even being decided and disputed. They did not have higher education. There was no seminary you could go to. There was no degree you could get to be a Jesus follower. There was no letters you could put before or after your name. There was no ordaining counsel or licensing. So, and we could go on and on. There were none of the things, very simply, that we would look to today to try to grow the church and expand the mission. They had none of it. And yet they grew and multiplied nearly a hundredfold in those years. While the church in the West today is dying at a staggering rate. And so it's the right question to say, how is that possible? What did they do that we are not doing? What did they know that we do not know? Or is it simply a matter of identity and calling? By the way, we we compared that because a a quick uh, dismissal of this as even an exploration would be, well, that was 2,000 years ago. The world is so different. The cultures are so different, and that is very true. But in much more recent history, uh, we laid aside the Chinese Christian Reformation or revolution that happened under Mao Zedong, the oppressive leader, where he instituted the bamboo curtain. This was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 19. 50s, 60s, 70s. It became very. It was very similar to those early church days. The church was persecuted. It was illegal. You could not proclaim Jesus as king. The government tried to eradicate all believers, all Bibles, threw many into prison, persecuted, martyred many. And so when the church, which was estimated at the time of the, the bamboo curtain under Mao Zedong, about 2 million Jesus followers, when that curtain was lifted in the early 80s, the church in the West, as they sent missionaries back in to seek to assess the, what they believed were the, was going to be the remnants, the decimation of the church, they were blown away. There were estimates that actually the church had thrived more than any, at any other time in its history up to that point, Harkening back to those early centuries, it had moved from 2 million professing Chinese believers to 60 million. And today it's doubled yet again. It hasn't grown nearly as fast, though the persecution does still remain. It's not to that level and that degree. And so we rightly ask, how is this possible? How, how does that happen? How does the multiplication of God's kingdom happen in Against all odds, it would seem. 
with nothing of the resources that we tend to look to and, and employ to see the church grow in the West. Is this kind of multiplication, the early Christians and the, the Chinese Christian revolution, is this the exception? Or is it something we are to expect? Is it supposed to be more of the norm? To be sure, the Holy Spirit is clearly at work in these movements. He always is in any advancement of the kingdom. He's multiplying his presence and his power is tangible. And God's people, the church, rely deeply on his and the Holy Spirit's presence and power. But I do agree with Alan Hirsch, author of Forgotten Ways and other modern missiologists, Ed Stetzer, that Jesus desires the church to grow like this, to multiply, to double and double and double. It's who he is at his very nature. It's what he does. So regardless of our experience, and it's good to have the right perspective, God's power and potential for growth is limitless. He loves to express it. If you know anything about the way God works, he loves to express his power and multiplication through the seemingly smallest, most insignificant things. And then therefore, people. What jumps to mind? A story Jesus told about a little tiny seed. A little tiny mustard seed that grows into almost like a tree, the largest of the garden plants, though it was the smallest of the seed. We can clearly go back into the story of God's people, Adam and Eve, Noah and his family, even Abraham and Sarah, from just a couple, a family, a nation is, emerges. The world is populated. I, I'm thinking of, we have these massive cedar trees, two of them. I love them and hate them at the same time. If you have cedar trees in your yard, they are magnificent. They're some of the, some of the largest living things, right, we have in, certainly in this area, if not the world. And yet, what are, how do they reproduce? Their, their cones are some of the smallest little cones. And inside of that little cone is a tiny little seed. And not only is there the potential for many more massive cedar trees within that tiny little cone, but there's actually the latent potential of a forest given enough time and the right conditions possessed into that one little seed. You could say the same thing about an apple tree. Uh, the seeds within an apple. It's not just the latent potential of another apple tree that produces fruit, but within one apple is the potential for an orchard. This is, what, this is who God is. It's what he does. The seemingly smallest things multiply into the biggest things. And then if you look at specific people throughout God's story, the ones that are the ignored ones, the younger brothers, the lessers, the weakers, the ones that would be least expected, like the Gideons, are often the ones called out to do the greatest things. And why would that be? Because if anything amazing were to happen in and through them, it was clearly because of the working of God amongst them. When the Alliance began as a movement back in the 1800s, 
You know, A.B. Simpson, the founder, had such a heart and a passion for the mission of God to reach all peoples with the hope of the gospel. He left his secure position, a a prominent position in New York City as a pastor of a Presbyterian church. He left that because they didn't have the same heart for the nations, especially the immigrants coming into the city. And he called up so many of his friends and said, would you come join me and simply pray for the nations? And he expected there to be dozens, if not a hundred or more that would come and pour out their hearts. Well, it was a cold November night. Maybe the planning wasn't so good. It was a little bit stormy. Six people showed up. And you know what they prayed? Those six, rather than be discouraged, and I'm sure there was a part of that that A.B. was battling, rather than be discouraged, those six said, God, we thank you that there's only a few of us and we have nothing much to offer except these prayers. Because if you will do anything through these prayers, it's all for your glory. God loves to do incredible things to the seemingly small and insignificant. He multiplies. It's his way of growth. God is the God of the harvest, Jesus said, so that he would multiply a seed 30, 60, 100 fold. We'll see it in the yard out here. Every seed right now, every little tiny grass seed is putting up one new shoot. But over the course of weeks and months, those roots will grow and expand and put up more shoots. And more shoots. So from one seed becomes hundreds potential of blades that create a lawn. Okay, so we see God, the God of the harvest. You can sow an amount of seed and in the right conditions, it will grow 30, it'll produce 30, 60, or 100 fold what is sown into that field. That's what God does. That's why we have this vision to be, to see, we see, we envision a hundredfold harvest in the next hundred years, beginning with the hundred of us. We've been saying that for a couple years now. I'll mention that again in a moment. That God is the God of the harvest and multiplication. And through each one of us, He not only wants us to double, He actually wants us to multiply. It's His way, it's His will, it's what He's always done. The mission of the church today is the same as Paul's was then. Truly, the church has one mission. Every local church may summarize it a different way. But there is not a different mission. We draw it directly from probably two primary places in Scripture. Matthew 28, 19. It's called the Great Commission for a reason. Jesus, in some of his final words to his disciples, says, Go, therefore, into all the nations, right, making disciples as you go, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. There's the mission, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. So we're still in that age. Has the age ended? No, it hasn't. So we're still in that same age with that same mission we've received from those first disciples, and we pass on that same mission to the next disciples beyond us. Acts 1.8, we draw from Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit will come upon you in power, and you will be my witnesses. Right in Jerusalem, so right where you begin, In Judea, in the surrounding region, to Samaria, those not like you, to the ends of the earth. There's no limit to the multiplication of what God wants to do in and through his people. So that's the mission. You may summarize it a different way. We summarize it with growing greenhouse type language to help all peoples find new life in Jesus and grow to bear fruit for him. Which is why our values are new shoots, New life, which is primarily new life in Jesus, whether, whether young or old, new life in Jesus, though it, we in some ways say we all need new growth. I mean, after a season of pruning or coming into the spring, we want to see new shoots. We want to see new life. So it's, it's a little twofold. 
the deep roots, that we would have such deep roots for whatever field he might plant us in, for whatever season he might ask us to go through, that we would be unwavering and unmovable, drawing deep from him. And diverse fruit, I hope, is clear. There's no limit of what God wants to do in and through his people to bless others. And so we, we draw that language from that mission, but it's all drawn from the words of Jesus, the commission to his disciples, which we receive. So last week we looked back at, Acts, or at Ephesians chapter 4 in order to look forward. So if you're just picking this up, that was a significant foundation. I preached through much of that first part of Ephesians 4. I would encourage you to pick that up and listen to it. But here I want us to look forward. With that as the foundation, look forward and make the connections of what that means for us. Is it possible, I I ask this question, is it possible that the early church and then the later Chinese Christian revolution and then really every multiplication of God's people, that we might say reformation, or we might say revolution, some other R-E word, that really every one of those at its core through the power and presence of the Spirit, simply did Ephesians 4. Is it possible that it's that simple? And I always put the asterisk, it's not easy. Something simple can be simple to grasp and understand and yet not easy to fulfill. But is it possible that it's that simple? And if we have the same power and presence of the Holy Spirit, do we have the same faith to simply do Ephesians 4? Some of those simple things. It's kind of been the, uh, the manual for church health really throughout the centuries. I hope you'll hold some of that in mind. If you weren't here last week, quickly scan some of those first verses, the ones we read and the ones we didn't, to kind of get an understanding of what Paul is calling the church to do. Remember, he's built the first three chapters reminding them who they are because of who their God is and what he's done, the gospel. This is your identity. This is who you are. Never forget it. Now, because of that, here's how we can live. If we flip those, we're in big, big trouble. We've got religion all over the place. But if we hold on to our identity because of who God is and because of incredible grace, now we can live in the fulfillment of this call to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel which we have received, the calling which we have received. Could we actually do Ephesians 4? I wrote in my margins, I actually typed into my notes this week, there was also, th- I think, three, at least three characteristics that the early church had that I wonder if we have. That was just absolutely clear. Not only did they know who they were in Christ and do what they had been called to do, articulated by Paul, but they also, each one, considered themselves a missionary. And in many ways, an apostle. An apostle, we looked at last week, simply means a sent one. And so I challenge all of us to think of ourselves more apostolic, that we all have been sent in some way. If God is the first apostle, and Jesus is the, therefore the greatest apostle, the greatest sent one, the greatest missionary, and we're to be like him, then we too must grow apostolically, or at least see ourselves as a missionary. We're on his mission. The missionaries are not special, unique, sent out ones. They have a unique expression. They may be the ones that pick up and move and go across the ocean to a whole new peoples of unreached peoples. But God has already sent us as missionaries and planted us, and especially around here, amongst the nations, amongst 
lost people. So it's simply to see ourselves as missionaries. The early church did. Everyone believed they had the same mission. They had a unique expression, unique gifting. They needed to work together to the advancement of that mission, but everyone saw themselves on that mission. Number two, they were willing to go. Even if they didn't feel like they had the calling to go, they said, you sit, we got to send someone, I'm willing. Should it be me? Should it be us? They had a willingness. And where they weren't sent out, they, see, we often only wait for the call. I have this incredible call to go. The early church, while they, they, they didn't disagree with that, they believed they had one call, to walk in a manner worthy, to follow Jesus wherever. So they looked at opportunities and said, well, who's going to go? Would you send me? Would you send us? It became the sending potential and power of the church, not only the response of an individual or family to a call. Uh, Jeff Smith would clearly articulate this. He says, I don't feel all that called, but I feel heavily sent. And so we stand behind them as senders. They have gone out because there was opportunity. And so we too, when we see ourselves as willing, if called, willing to go, being prepared to go should we be sent. And they were willing to send their best. The Acts 13 is the perfect example of this. Paul and Barnabas were their best leaders. Paul's their best, most outspoken teacher, apostle, evangelist. Barney is the, most, the greatest encourager they knew. He's their pastor. He'd be, he's the one that's there. He's always calling you up. He's encouraging you. He's sending you notes. He's leaving you little gifts and presents. He's going, he's, those are the two that get sent out. The two that you want to most keep. The church says no. Because we have found new life in Jesus. We're secure and we will miss them. But there's people that do not yet know. We're sending, sending our 18. They're willing to do that. So number one, everyone saw themselves as a missionary. Number two, everyone was willing to be sent and to get behind those that were, that were being sent out. And number three, this is so critical, they lived with urgency. They believed the time was short. Jesus said he's coming back. In fact, it seems like it's been too long already. So that means it must be very, very soon. There's more people that do not know him or dying apart from him. The time is urgent. We must go because we're going to see him soon. We are always, the church is always supposed to live with that sense of urgency because nobody knows that day or time. We're currently surprised because we look back in history. When he comes, we will not be surprised. We, will be, we would be expectant of his return. And so would that change how we live if those three things were true of us? Change how we respond and be the church. I think those are critical for us as well as we apply the words of Ephesians 4. These are our roots. Alan Hirsch said, we need to look back. In fact, the church has always looked back into its history. The problem is, it hasn't looked back far enough so often. He said, we need refounding more than we need reformation. Reformation may only look back a few hundred years. Refounding may look back to 2,000 years to its beginning. And then he said, but we also could use a lot of reformation as well, to be fair. So Lord, help us. Help us that we would know what you've called us to, who you've called us to be, who you've made us. Open our eyes to our forgotten ways and give us the conviction and ability to do what you've called us to do, to walk in this manner 
worthy. Our world is so desperate and in such need. Would you teach us your multiplication and show us how we are to grow and multiply by your power and according to your presence. So let me preach vision and I hope be intensely practical to lay out what I believe we are called to, every one of us, and in the season ahead, specific examples of what that would look like to be fulfilled in our midst. So this is bodybuilding, Union Hill style, hopefully built on that same foundation of the early church, that there's ultimately nothing, nothing new. We might see unique expressions put into place. And I'll use greenhouse language because that can unify us. Language is culture building. Even if it's cheesy, it does. What I'm, this is what I'm urging for all of us. Every one of us needs to grow. What I prayed this morning as we gathered was that even as I am preaching this, that I am aware of the growth that needs to happen in me and through me. I am expressing a unique gifting. I am not spiritually greater or more holy if you too are in Christ. And so we are called uniquely this growth, when we talk about growing up into Christ in every way, when Paul is talking about the body growing and being healthy, there is the twofold application. There's the individual application, every one of us. I mean, there's individual call and conviction that comes. Every one of us must live this way. Every one of us may, must take a step. So I'm asking you to pray right now as God asking you and convicting you to take a step as I articulate that. It's a step toward Jesus. Make sure that's very clear as we are seeking to build up His church, His bride, for the advancement of His kingdom. Where conviction comes, there's also encouragement that it is possible. We are not alone. We are in this together. And that's the second part. That this is a collective expression, a group expression. We must all grow up. One healthy disciple is not enough. He, does not, he or she does not possess all of the gifts. He does not know enough, have enough experience, have enough connections. We must all work together in this. Let me preach vision and strategy along with mission. Your elders, along with myself, Craig, and Phil, we spent 24 hours together a couple weeks ago. It was a break for some sleep in between. Uh, we, we primarily were coming together as we go into this new season to affirm our mission, our vision, our strategy, our values, and our convictions. And to do so in a way of writing policy, that was part of what was tasked to us. You may remember back in May and June, we wrote our first policy and adopted our policies. And if you would, are interested and would like to see that, please let me know or contact the church office. Uh, it's 13 pages long, so we thought just to print a bunch of copies and waste paper, uh, we may not do that. Maybe some are very interested in that. It's going to direct some of the way that we lead, and we want to be effective to that and accountable to that. It's, it's a, it is adopted, although it can be changed and altered a little more fluidly than bylaws and structure. So there's a brief update for those of you that went through that process. Thank you. Uh, we feel unified. And let me tell you, not only do these men love Jesus, they love you. I don't know that a meeting goes by that we're not all in tears in some way as we pray for the advancement of God's kingdom, as we pray for you. And I can't tell you how encouraged I am by not just the unity that is there, but the commitment to this vision and this mission. I believe this is the first time in, in my season of ministry here in this last decade that there has been such unified commitment around vision 
and mission. And that gets me excited. It also puts me on guard against the work of the enemy who would like to divide and distract and destroy. And so we rebuke the enemy for any intent that he has. He is unable to do that in our midst today. The vision we affirmed, we've really been casting the past couple years. This isn't, I'm not unveiling something new. Maybe it will sound new to you. I am unveiling a new goal that is, I would say, a relatively bold goal the way we're articulating it, and it required that we would be unified and committed. And so you will hear that as new, but I hope the rest of this sounds familiar because it's not new. Our vision is in three parts to become a greenhouse church. That should sound familiar. What do I mean? What do we mean? A healthy, safe, nutritional environment for people to grow and thrive for a season. What it also means to be a greenhouse is a willingness and desire to send and to bless people and even church planting for new life and new growth in the fields around us. Okay, number uh, second, second part of the vision, to produce a hundredfold harvest in the next hundred years. I've already mentioned that today. What, what I want to articulate, though, is this represents, why, why do we say a hundred years? We're celebrating somewhere around a hundred years of God's people, Jesus' followers, meeting on this corner. We only have a few dates that are official that we know of, but the record of history is that as early as the teens and 20s, there was a gathering of believers, at least for prayer and Bible study, in that same fellowship hall that we, many of us meet in after we meet here. It became, we became an official organized church on June 6, 1933, celebrating 86 years this summer. And so when we say 100 years as we're looking forward, we're also recognizing we're looking back. And you've been hearing me about how important that is, to look back to our roots in order that we look forward. We do that here. We recognize the shoulders of faith that we stand on, who have built this place both spiritually and physically. And we pray, God, may there be your people. Jesus, if you wait another hundred years, there will be your people still meeting here. And likely none of us in this room will be here, besides a minor miracle. And they would be standing on our shoulders too, having stewarded well, having built up your body and maintained these facilities in a way that would honor you through stewardship. So that's the hundred years for a hundred years. It's not, oh, hundred years, that's plenty of time. It means we have to be intentional now for this kind of growth to happen. A hundredfold harvest. Maybe it's only 30. But when Jesus said God's the God of the harvest and he can multiply 30, 60, or 100, I'm praying for the 100. Ultimately, the multiplication of the harvest is in God's hands. We simply can only be faithful to sow, to grow, to nurture, to cultivate, to water, those kinds of tending garden images. Only God makes the growth and produces the fruit. We leave it in his hands, but it is his will. The orchard from a seed, the forest from a seed. And the third part of that vision is to help all peoples be field ready. Multiplication happens best in the field. It doesn't happen in the greenhouse. The greenhouse is the place to grow strong, healthy, and and deep roots, but not not until we go into the fields and are planted can we grow the deepest roots and produce the greatest harvest so that we would be field ready. And this is kind of the part that we've articulated more clearly, that in three years' time, 
Each one of us, wherever we find ourselves today, wherever, however we find ourselves when God decides to plant us into his greenhouse, that within three years we would be growing, thriving, and equipped to be a part, a vibrant part, of a church plant. Should we be sent, right? More than should we be called, should we be sent? And we are praying that by 2022, that's three years, we hold it open hands, that we would be prepared to be sending a church plant into this region somewhere. A neighborhood, a school, a field, an existing building, whatever God leads. We don't have that in place, but the heart behind it is that we would grow. And you, would sit, you may sit here today and say, I'm ready. Well, you're not. You may be sitting here today probably more likely saying, that's never going to be me. I'll stay and I'll sin. I'll be, I'll be one of those sinners. You may be surprised because when we get to that point, we all, I want us all to be praying, God, am I supposed to be sent? Maybe it's for a season, not this indefinite. Maybe it's very clear. It would become obvious. So wherever you find yourself today, you say, man, I, I am so far away from that. I don't know enough. I don't even, I'm just trying to get my, my world together. I don't, even, I don't even know my Bible. I don't, how could I do it? Well, we're here as your leaders to help equip you if you are willing to let us try. That within three years, you would be a vibrant part of a team. I'm not saying you're the leader of that team or the leader of any part of that team, but you're a vibrant part. Whoever those leaders are would say, yes, I'll take him, I'll take her, I'll take that family. Because of the way you have grown in this season. So that's kind of the... The bold, if you're going to state it, we're going to pray for it. We're going to go for it. And we have a specific strategy to get us there. If this is going to become a reality, then we must double. This isn't the strategy. It's just understanding. Okay, we, we can't prune ourselves down to the nub and expect the existing church to continue to thrive. If right now we send out 50 of our best leaders and servants Union Hill Church will struggle mightily. But we want to be prepared to do that. So that means we need to double. That means every level needs to double. Whatever you're a part of, you need to see multiplication. The elders are committed to doubling. In three years, there should be six of us. Maybe seven, maybe eight. We don't just need to stop, but with that mindset, our life groups need to double. Our, our kids' ministries and youth ministries need to double. Our music ministries, our hospitality ministries, our mercy team, everyone needs to double. It doesn't happen tomorrow, but we can, we can overestimate. This is well said, I think, by Alistair Begg, is who I first heard it from. We can overestimate what we can accomplish in one year's time. We often do that. Oh, I'm going to do this this year. Think of your New Year's resolutions and how much of it you actually accomplish. But rarely do we rightly vision and estimate what we can do in three to five years. And that's what I'm talking about that we would long for what we could see accomplished in three to five years, and there's work to do in this year. So if you're a leader already, you're looking, if I'm gone, who can lead in my place? Who is ready? And if there's not someone ready, there's equipping to be done. Because either when we get to that season and we get to, by God's grace, send out a church plant, that's going to leave a hole in the greenhouse because you as a leader are going to go with that plant, being equipped to go, and someone needs to step in. Are they ready? Have you done the work to at least be equipping and preparing those next leaders? Or it's those next leaders that are going to be the ones that go and you've nurtured that 
that they might grow and thrive in a whole new way. So we must double. Everything must double if we're going to do that and see that happen. And that's what we're longing for. And you're a part of it. That's not just the leaders. You need to do that work. It's the work of growth and multiplication. It's, it's what we're called to. From both those that don't even know Jesus today that could actually be in three years a part of a vibrant church plant team. May it be, Lord. They might be the most passionate evangelist amongst us if you would get a hold of hearts like that. But use us in that way to the ones that are already sitting and maybe we're on the sidelines. No, not everyone will be sent. Some need to be senders. But don't assume you know that answer today because we are all called to grow, every one of us. So here's the strategy. This is what we wrote into our policies. We will use whatever methods, means, and resources necessary, assuring that they are moral, ethical, and legal. We've kind of borrowed some of this language, but it's probably good to state that. To help people grow in Jesus and bear fruit for him. So how will we do this? How will we know that we're on track in these three years? We need to know what that looks like. We need to know what a healthy, vibrant, thriving disciple of Jesus looks like, one who can multiply the mission in the neighborhoods. We need to know what that looks like so that we can articulate it and have a strategy. And by the way, we believe we know what it looks like. Do you? It seems like a very simple question, doesn't it? What does a healthy, thriving, strong, faithful disciple of Jesus look like? Who are they? What do they do? Okay, go ahead. Write it down. I'll give you a minute. Look, Check the clock. I don't have too many minutes to give you. Write it down. Think about it. You've got an answer? You know, I could give, should I give some group time? No, that we'd, we'd, do it. we'd unravel probably. The, the point is, it's, it's a little more difficult to define quickly with words. And in fact, if, if we're a normal church, and if we did that exercise and had that time, and I had you break up in groups, and then we came with responses, there would be as many different responses as there are people in the room. And that would include all those that had no response and no answer. I have no clue. I don't know what you're talking about. Because many of you would have many, well, what, I think this, and I think this, and I think this. An abnormal church is one that the majority of people who have been around for a while would say the same thing with the same kind of language. That's abnormal. I would love to be an abnormal church, and it's not that much of a stretch. So what is it? Four things. Four things. Greenhouse language. I hope you can grasp that. They're not new. Not only is this what a healthy, growing, thriving disciple is, it's what they do. So it's both and. It's both the identity and it's the strategy because it's articulated. Four things. Planted, growing, bearing, sowing. It's an action. We must help one another be planted, get growing, be bearing and sharing fruit, and be sowing. But it's also who we are, each one of us. A healthy, growing, thriving disciple of Jesus is these things. They are planted. They are growing. They are bearing fruit. And they are sowing seed. So that's greenhouse language. If I take it from there, what does that mean? To be planted. Jesus, by the way, is our model. He did every one of these things. Jesus was planted in community. He never did anything alone. We see that from the three he was with to the twelve to the many. He was constantly doing life with people. He was in community, knowing people and being known. It was a, it's a, it maybe number one strategy for him, life on life. So you must be in community. 
Be planted in community. By the way, I mean, we're starting with an assumption that you've been planted in Jesus, but if we need to back it up, you need to be planted in Jesus first. Abide in him, the vine, in order that we could plant into community with one another. What is the expression of that? It's what we do here on Sundays. This is important. I wouldn't say it's most important. It's hard to equate that. But are you committed? Now I'm preaching to the choir because you're here today. So you're here. But are you really here to know and to be known? The average attendance of someone who says, yes, I go to church. I'm a follower of Jesus. In this country, is three out of eight Sundays. I'd say that's not regular. That's not knowing and being known. Are you here? Are you planted? And by the way, I hope you want to want to be here. But if you're anything like me, there are some Sundays, I'm sure few and far between, where you do not want to be here. And the next time that happens and you wake up and say, I do not want to be there, consider the fact that maybe that's the very day you're supposed to be here and the enemy is trying to keep you from here. And second, you are not here for you. I hope you are fed. I hope you receive. I hope you are encouraged. I center much of my ministry on doing that, trying to be the vessel of communication from God's word to conviction and encouragement. I hope you receive. But if that's why you're coming, you are a consumer. And this is not about consumerism. It's about discipleship. You are here for one another. You might not say anything or do anything. Your presence is important. If everyone who called Union Hill Church their home was here, we would not have any more room. And so far, we have not had that problem. Will you be here? Be here for me. It's hard to preach to a half-empty room. We are called not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but to continue to spur one another on toward love and good deeds and all the more as you see the day approaching. That should be increasing, not decreasing. Hebrews 10. Get planted in a life group that you would know and be known, share vulnerably, By the way, we have one or two new groups, I hope, starting up in October. We'll announce that in time to come. We have existing groups that are awesome, that are running. You can check out that on the website. Get planted, get planted. Get growing. Number two, get growing in Jesus, loving and pursuing God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus did this always. He was Jesus, and he he was God, and he grew In wisdom and stature, he studied the Bible. He learned it. He memorized it. He trusted in the Holy Spirit. He spent his whole life trying to discern the Spirit's voice and leading that he would only do what God the Father wanted him to do. He modeled this for us. We're called to do the same. We have growth groups intentionally for this. I hope hope in every one of these things, they're part of our growth, but specifically, our growth groups are designed, and we have a much clearer plan for this. Starting on October 15th, we are starting a Deep Roots growth group. Craig and I will be co-teaching that. We're going to do three six-weeks trimesters this year. So six weeks, hopefully biteable, but at the same time, a commitment to grow starting in October through November, again in February through partway into March, and then May to the end of the year, three times. And this first trimester is going to be on living free. You can check it out online right now under our growth groups. You can register there. You can see more info there. You'll hear more in the weeks ahead. Get growing. Men's growth group has a different angle to it, uh, but I hope you would get planted into that if you're a man also. Third thing, bearing Bearing fruit 
that we might share with one another. This clearly means the fruit of the Spirit in our life and through us. It also means the fruit of the gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, that we would serve and bless others. So get plugged into a ministry team if you're not already serving. There's many that could use you. You can find out that list online in many places. Not everything is on there. But you can contact me or the office and say, I just want to help. How can I, how can I help? What teams need me? Maybe you have new room in your life. You're already serving on a team and you're saying, what else can I do? It's the heart of a servant as we each one explore what our specific gifts are. God has gifted us uniquely. As it says in Ephesians 4, each part must work. Everyone, that the whole body would grow up and be joined together. So we discover that as we serve, as we bless, what bearing fruit and sharing is also generosity. We give faithfully. I know many of you give generously and some of it comes here and some goes to many other places. That's awesome. But the majority of us give less than 5% to Kingdom Advancing Ministries. And actually the national average is one5 That is not generosity. I struggle that 10% is not even generosity sometimes because I have an expectation to give 20% when I'm at a restaurant. That's a tip? What am I giving to God? It's a bad tip in our culture. I wrestle with that. I wrestle with giving the government more of the percentage of my income than I give to God's kingdom. Are you wrestling? God, what does generosity look like in this season? We are called to steward much, so I encourage you to give generously and then up to practice hospitality. This is bearing fruit to bless others. Open up your house. Open up your doors. We had two, two weeks ago, we shared those stories. You're, so many of you are already doing it. Keep doing it. Bear fruit. Share hospitality, generosity, growing up in Christ. And number four, sowing seed. Right? This is clearly the ministry of Jesus. He is constantly sowing the seed of the word. Wherever he goes, whether it's on, I mean, some seed might fall on the path and in the rocky soil and in the thorns, but we don't run out of seed. Let's be mindful of where we're sowing. That looks like good soil. Let's, let's get more seed there. That, that'd be wise. But we don't run out. We don't have a little bit that we've got to discern. Well, that's, that, seed could, that ground could never grow anything. All it takes is a rainstorm. If there's no seed there, it's not going to grow. We would be seed sowers. And again, so many of you do this in diverse ways, and that's awesome. We have specific missionary partners to the ends of the earth that we are blessing. That's sowing seeds to the end of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. Probably our most consistent corporate collective so- seed sowing is with our neighbors, these schools that we've blessed for years, which is part of the response to wanting to simply go pray in the fields for them, for all who would come into that place today and maybe even beyond, that we would be in the field. Maybe we'll meet Jesus there. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. So let's be in the fields wherever. It's just a tangible expression. We love our neighbors. Our schools need our prayers more than ever, but it's also a tangible, I'm standing in a field today and it's a rainy day. Good. All the more excuses we could say to not do it. But if we apply that to the other fields in our life where we live, learn, work, and play, there's always a reason to not sow seeds to not go, to not be stretched, to not look with eyes of Jesus, to see that the fields are white for the harvest. May it be, may it be evident in our midst, Lord, that we are seed sowers. So have you heard the Spirit? Not, oh, I think Ben wants me to do this. Let that go. But have you heard the Spirit say, yes, I must take this step to be more planted, to get growing, to be bearing and sharing fruit, to be seed sowing. Then respond to that. 
That's who we must be. We move to Jesus in all of this for his kingdom. I'm just using language that I hope unifies and creates some culture, but I hope you see it's the mission and the vision of God. It's his heart to grow, to multiply, to expand. Today we come toward Jesus in heart and mind as we sing, as we respond. We come toward him physically, perhaps by coming to the table and receiving, to be reminded of what he's done for us and why he would call us to this. In fact, why he would invite us to this. Who are we? But could it be that we would multiply a hundredfold? May it be. I invite the team to come and lead us. Catherine put, me, put the timer on me this week because of last week. So there's enough time. Do three. We can do three songs. Let's do it. Don't cut any. By the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, would any of this be possible? Our faithfulness to the word, to actually do Ephesians 4, to move toward Jesus both here in this moment and as we go out those doors to actually move toward where he's sending us. Some of what you've been convicted on to do can't be done today. It must be delayed, but there's work to do. Would you commit to that somehow by either sharing it or writing it down, responding again to the Spirit? So let me pray for us as we respond. Holy Spirit, convict us. We welcome you here. We're going to sing that song. We welcome you here. I pray that if any of these words are not of you, let them blow away like the chaff. But if they are seeds of truth, of the gospel of healing, of reconciliation, of life, of multiplication, then may they land on the good soil of our hearts and grow for your glory for your kingdom's sake, knowing that that will be to our joy. Lord, remind us of who you are, what you've done, and therefore what you've called us to do. Move us in the power of your spirit, Lord, we pray. Amen.